So I posted something on Facebook uh, last week on the five niyamas, and I was surprised at the response that post got because it's um, it's something that's um, found in early Buddhism, and it's the reason why stuff happens. And everybody wants to know why stuff happens. So I thought I would talk about that today, and I would use this article I found, which is really well-written and succinct, and do the commentary. And so we're going to have to give Barbara O'Brien, about.com, her credit for writing, and then we'll give me the credit for commentary. So that'll be good. So I'm going to say uh, Barbara writes... So we, so when people, if people listen to this, they'll know when I'm speaking and when Barbara is speaking. So Barbara writes, the Buddha's teachings on karma differ from those of other religions of Asia. Many people believed and still believe that everything about their present life was caused by actions in the past. In this view, everything that happens to us happened because of something we did in the past. She continues, but the Buddha disagreed. He taught that there are five types of factors at work in the cosmos that cause things to happen. And these are called the five niyamas. Karma is one of these factors. Present circumstances are the result of countless factors that are always in flux. There is no single cause that makes everything to be the way it is. Now, that last paragraph, whether you heard it or not, is just simply profound because what she said is uh, God doesn't do this. Now, when I grew up, I thought of God as this old guy with a gray beard sitting in the throne with a staff. And he watched everything I did. And if he didn't like what I was doing, thinking, or saying, he would cause me to have problems in my life. And then I would have to pray to him and ask for forgiveness so my life would be better. And As I got older, I figured, well, I already had a dad and a mom. Maybe I didn't need another one. And then I started to be a little bit of a rascal, and I said to myself, well, maybe I'll just be an agnostic and not really know anything. And that'll give me a sense of freedom that I haven't had in my life up to that point. So I stopped believing in any one thing and just had this sort of vague idea that there was something in charge. And then I became a Buddhist. And that just like ruined everything because <laughs> what it said to me is, no, there, there is this sort of order, this cosmic order, but there's like no one in charge. Okay. So then... I spoke about this, I think, last month or the month before, about this Alfred North Whitehead conference. And he has something called Process Theology. And he did this whole thing, this whole model, this whole paradigm to include everything in this, in this model. And he, and he included God as well. But he said, you know, God is not 
does not stand apart from all this stuff. God is part of the process. He, she, it is in there with everything else. And all those things combined in process and relationship causes everything else to happen, which is really profound and really difficult to understand. So having five things to understand makes it a whole lot easier. And for me, having the idea that no one is in charge, there is no intention behind anything that happens. I so like that. That if there's a hurricane, there's no intention to ruin the earth. The hurricane just came about because of certain conditions. It does what it does, and then it goes away. And then we pick up the pieces and rebuild and curse the hurricane. But the hurricane didn't want to destroy our house and more likely our trailer. (laughs) Trailers always get it. Do you notice that? You know, it just did what it does. So I like that indifference. I like the fact that nature is indifferent. And if I go out into the Angeles National Forest and I get lost and I die, I really can't blame blame nature for killing me because the spider got me or the snake got me or the tree branch fell and killed me. They call those witter makers. It's just like I didn't know how to survive. And it was me against the elements, and the elements won. But the elements didn't want to kill me. So, what is the first one? The first niyama is the natural law. This is Barbara writing. The natural law of non-living matter. She goes on to say, this natural law orders the change of seasons and phenomena related to climate and the weather. It explains the nature of heat and fire and soil and gases and water and wind. Most natural disasters such as floods and earthquakes would be governed by this niyama. Put into modern terms, this niyama would correlate with what we think of as physics, chemistry, geology, and several sciences of inorganic phenomena. The most important point to understand about this niyama is that the matter it governs is not part of the law of karma and is not overridden by karma. So from a Buddhist perspective, natural disasters such as earthquakes are not caused by karma. So... A few years ago, we had this giant earthquake, and we had this giant tsunami, and it hit Thailand, and it killed a lot of people. And I remember reading in the paper, and if it's written, you know it's going to be true, that it was God's will that that tsunami hit Thailand. And then the Buddhists say, no, no, it was their karma. Thailand did something terrible, and their karma brought this upon Thailand. And now you look at the first niyama and you go, no, some platelets moved and this water was displaced and it's a giant wave and it killed a bunch of people. But it wasn't intentional and it wasn't doing it because there was any moral problem with Thailand, which would be the karmic aspect of it. But then now let's see if we can figure it out without understanding the other niyamas yet. 
One of the niyamas would be biological, which I'm going to talk about next. And the biology of the people in Thailand, which sort of predetermined that they would be living there because their parents were born there and their parents were born there. And so biology had something to do with some of the people who died in Thailand because they were born there. So it wasn't completely just, you know, geological. It's never simply just ever one thing. It's always a variety of things that are in relationship and are in process. Mind is another niyama. We're going to get to that. And mind had a lot to do with why some people died in Thailand. Because they were on vacation. They thought it would be fun to go to Thailand and spend their vacation on the beach. And then they died. So we have the geological, we have the biological, we have mind or consciousness. Always a bunch of stuff goes into why stuff happens. Malaysian airliner, still can't find it. You know, it's been like a year or so, maybe longer. They had a wonderful PBS documentary on what could have happened. We have spent millions of dollars, millions of dollars, to find out why that plane went down. And yet, no answer yet. Still waiting. So it seems to be a human need to know why. And these five niyamas can help us with that need. The second one is the niyama of living matter. Genes and chromosomes, the biological component. It goes like this. This niyama, Barbara says, is the law of living matter what we would think of as biology. The Pali word bija means seed, so bija niyama governs the nature of germs and seeds and the attributes of sprouts, leaves, flowers, fruits, and plant life generally. Some modern scholars suggest that the laws of genetics that apply to all life, plant life, and animal would come under the heading of this niyama. So now we have the biological aspect of why stuff happens. So when I looked in the mirror today, as I did my buzz cut, I looked at my receding hairline, which is, doesn't really matter anymore, and I thought to myself, should I blame God for this? <laughs> and then I said, no, no, it's probably just my genes and chromosomes. If I'm going to blame anybody, it's going to be Dad, because Dad looked just like this at my age, you know? And his father looked like that too. So I'm thinking to myself, one of the stuff, one of the reasons stuff happens is because of genes and chromosomes. And it's hard to really feel like a victim if it's genes and chromosomes. It's an, it's dealing with the ancestral line of who you are and where you came from. So can we just look at that and go, yeah, these are some challenges that I have. You know, I'm, I'm too tall, I'm too small, I'm too wide, I'm too narrow, my feet are too big, my feet are too small. All these have to do with genetics and not karma and not a divine being and not geology. So it's another way of looking at what's happening to you right now and coming to a place of acceptance with it. The idea in Buddhism is we don't want to suffer. That's the whole deal. That's why we're all sitting here today. Hopefully, this talk will not increase your suffering. 
So we are trying to find out why humans suffer and how to end that suffering. And one of the ways we suffer is we blame the wrong things for our life. You know, it's not our children's fault or our cat's fault or our parents' fault. So I got up at 5.30 this morning because of the cat, and I think it could have been its fault. Now we come to karma niyama. This is the big one. This is the moral one. Karma. All of our volitional thoughts, words, and deeds create an energy that brings about effects, and that process is called karma, according to Barbara. The important point here is that karma niyama is a kind of natural law, like gravity, that operates without having to be directed by divine intelligence. In Buddhism, karma is not a cosmic criminal justice system. (laughs) And no supernatural force or God is directing it to reward the good and punish the bad. Karma is rather a natural tendency for skillful actions to create beneficial effects and unskillful actions to create harmful or painful effects. Karma is really complicated. It's not what goes around comes around. That was a great bumper sticker in the 70s. It doesn't apply to what I'm about to say. Karma is everything we think, say, and do. It is we are generating an energy that has a moral value. This energy is neutral until we get our little mind, mouth, and body wrapped around it. And then we create this thing. We are like transformers, the real transformers. And we're taking all this energy and we're transforming it. We have skillful energy. We have unskillful energy. And there are a couple ways to decide if it is skillful or unskillful. Now, one way to decide in what you're thinking, saying, and doing, if it is skillful, you wait for the results to happen. The consequences, the vipaka. But it may be too late by then to change anything, because once the consequences start to manifest, there's no way to change it. Karma is not predestination. We have a choice in the matter. We can change the direction of our karma Anytime we want to, as long as we are awake to the process of creating karma. Okay, so we can wait for the consequences, or we can see the intentions behind what we think, say, and do. And those intentions behind what we think, say, and do can give us insight into how the consequences might manifest, pleasant or unpleasant. So, what are these intentions? Number one. Lust and greed, they are connected. In what I'm thinking, saying, and doing, are they based on lust and greed? If that is the case, chances are I will have an unpleasant consequence. And you might think, well, you know, lust, that's not so bad. Oftentimes those consequences are pretty good. But they could cause you to suffer eventually. In the Maury show. Has anybody ever seen the Maury show? (laughs) And there's Maury saying, you are the father. And suffering occurs on that stage. 
and greed. We'd love to have all our stuff. It's ours. We've worked for it. We have our receipts. We're not giving it to anybody. You know, and we never have enough. You only have enough if you want less. That's what I say. And so how do we get to that place of knowing if the intention is based on greed and lust? We know it because we meditate and spend hours a week looking at our thought process, seeing them come into existence, being born, if you will, existing, existing for a while and then falling away. And we can see the lust arise. Jennifer Lopez just had a birthday. Lust arising. <laughs> lust going away. We can see it. We know what's going to stimulate it. We know when it's there. Do we have to speak and act on it? No. We can just let the thought exist for a while and then fall away. And if it only stays as a thought, the consequences are so minimal you may not even realize there are any at all. But when the thought turns into speech or action, the consequences manifest in a huge way. Speech has a lot of physical consequences. You wouldn't think so, but they do. Say the wrong thing at the wrong time, and the world just goes crazy. Think of Donald Trump. <laughs> He's just saying what he thinks, and everybody is going insane. You know, and all the people behind him are saying, yeah, somebody finally said it. Whether it's true or not, whether it's good or bad, the guy's talking and getting people to think. Okay. But he is going to have to accept the consequences of his speech ultimately. You can't get out of it. You can't pray to karma to forgive you. Karma has no eyes or ears. Then... The activity that's manifested behind the intention has the most consequence. So we're talking about understanding a process like gravity and understanding we can use it to our advantage if we are awake to the process. And it becomes a big disadvantage if we're sleepwalking and don't understand what we think, say, and do, how that affects the world around us. Okay? Now, for a Buddhist... When we die, that karma does not go away. That is the very thing that is reborn into the next lifetime. I think of it as like a boat with a wake. And the boat goes down, us dying, but the wake continues into the next lifetime. So we have all these karmic predispositions we're born with, you know? We did it this way 20 lifetimes, and we're probably going to do it again in the 21st lifetime, but if we wake up and consciously decide to pay attention to what we're thinking, saying, and doing, we can change the course of events at any time. So if you say something that's really unskillful, help an old lady across the street. Give somebody a dollar. Let somebody go in line in front of you. Just to change that karmic direction. Gain some merit to benefit you. See, we're in business, you know? This is our business. Our business is our life. And we're understanding how it works, and we need some more merit. Our day's not going very well. Be kind to somebody, you know? Use what you understand karma to be to make a good day for yourself and for others. And everyone will benefit. 
So one of the reasons stuff happens is because of karma, and karma is the moral aspect of why things happen. It's not the geology, it's not the biology, it's the karma, and that's the moral. And in Buddhism, we don't like to use the word good or bad, we like to use the word skillful or unskillful. Lot less baggage. Lot less baggage. Anybody can become more skillful, given time and practice. Okay, the fourth niyama is dharma niyama, and Barbara writes the Pali word dharma has several meanings. It has as many as 16 different meanings. It's often used to refer to the teachings of the Buddha, but it is also used to mean something like manifestation of reality. Wow. Or the nature of existence. One way to think of dharma niyama is a natural spiritual law. The doctrines of not-self and shunyata, emptiness, and the marks of existence, for example, would be part of the dharma niyama. Now, I spoke of this before, but let me speak about this again. That in the old days, the Theravadins, in their abhidharma, the psychology of the dharma, said our existence and our reality is formed using building blocks almost similar to atoms. People remember the atoms before we had protons and neutrons. And that was like the smallest building block. And I can remember sitting in fourth grade and the teacher saying, you know, your desk is not solid. It's just a bunch of atoms and there's space between. And I just looked at my desk and thinking, what the hell are they talking about? (laughs) You know, I just didn't dawn on me that something solid could be filled with air and atoms and seem solid, but not really be. Okay, now we get to this quantum physics stuff, and they say, you know, we were misled thinking atoms were the building blocks of our world. It really is like protons and neutrons that are going in the atoms, and then we have quarks, and then we have... Then we have particles and process. You go, really? You mean we get down to the smallest of the small of the small, and all there is is things moving around? And there's nothing solid? Well, sometimes in the process you can see the particles, you know, but the particles you can only see sometimes, and the process you can only see sometimes, and they're actually happening at exactly the same time. It just depends how you look at them as to what you see. And I'm reading this book, The Tao of Physics, and I'm going, wow. And then I read The Dancing Wooly Masters, Gary Zukov. I went, wow, wow. This is so cool. Because the biggest of the big and the smallest of the small is simply a process that's in relationship with everything else, which is exactly what Alfred North Whitehead said in his book, Process and Reality. So now we look at the dharmas as being the building blocks of our experience. And these dharmas have a philosophical connection to early Buddhism, but these dharmas also have become something called not-self and emptiness. So we got this not-self thing. In the old days, it was no-self, but we gave up on that because the self said, I exist. And so we went, okay, you exist, but what are you really? And it turns out the self is a bunch of events within a process. But it doesn't stand alone. 
and it doesn't stand in any kind of real time. It only exists moment to moment, how many moments in a minute, as many moments as you want, because moments have no duration. And we have this event called us, you know, and, and Holly said, look, everybody came here today for you. I said, I'm an event. <laughs> an event within a process, manifesting with no time at all. It's just moment by moment, I seem to exist in the way you see me now. But am I really there? Well, for a while, in some way, but then it's not really me ever because the me that I think is there is manifesting because of a variety of conditions that have come together in a unique way that allows me to be here today. Wow, okay. Not self. Why do we go not self? Well, we didn't go not self in the old days. We went not soul in the old days. Because everybody had a soul in the old days. Everybody wanted to have a soul. And the soul was the direct connection to God. And when you died, that little part of your soul went back to the mothership and God was happy. And I love that story. Because it's just so comforting to know that there's a mothership waiting for me. But the Buddha said, you know, I see a philosophical problem with this model. If, in fact, there is a soul that is eternal and unchanging and stands apart from the process, in one of those many lifetimes you will experience, you may say to yourself, it really doesn't matter in this lifetime what I do, because I can be the biggest jerk I want to and make up for it in the next ten lifetimes. So he saw a problem with accountability, that if our soul is eternal and independent, we may not take it seriously in every lifetime. He also said, if you don't think you have a soul, if you think this is all you got, and when you die, you're just going to feed the trees, you may not take that seriously either, because there's no consequence for anything you do in this lifetime after you die. You just sort of check out. Now... According to some scholars, the Buddha said, you know, you may have a soul, you may not have a soul, but it's not who you really are. You are not soul. And in 2015, we would say, you are not self. So the self has sort of taken the place of the soul, and it's this wonderful thing that manifests because we have a mind and a body, and it's how we identify ourselves and how people identify us, and we're all in conspiracy with each other to exist. And it works. We're all here today because everybody thinks we're here. Fantastic. Okay, so now we got this no soul, and then Mahayana Buddhism came, and Mahayana Buddhism said, you know, they were on the right track, those early Buddhists, but they missed the point. The point is, nothing exists. Not only isn't there a self or a soul that exists independently, but the chair and the door and the drapes and the building, they don't exist either in the way we think they do. Everything is empty of independent existence. Everything is in this interconnected, interdependent mosaic, and it's just there. And all of a sudden, we'll pull something out and say, look at that car, and then we'll just put it back in. You know, And for that one moment, we pull it out and make that car an event. It does exist in our life. And then we just push it back. 
So can you imagine looking at the world as being empty of independent existence? That we are in conspiracy with each other to say this world exists in the way we think it does. And then we have the Democrats, the, the independents, and the Republicans that have sort of a different take on how it exists. And now we start to pick sides on what it, it's the true meaning of our existence, our reality, what is truth, what is not truth, what is ultimate truth, what is relative truth. Whoa, it gets so complicated. And then you sit down in meditation and you let all this stuff sort of just fall away and you come to this place of breath and your whole life now consists of just breathing in and out, in and out. It's so simple. And yet when you the gong rings and everybody comes to attention and consciousness comes back and we march, march out the door, we are now faced with the 10,000 things that make our life happen again. Wow. So, Dharma, Dharma Niyama, these are the philosophical, almost theological reasons why we experience the world the way we do. So that's one reason why stuff happens, because of this Dharma Niyama. Now, finally, we come to the last niyama, the fifth one. It is chitta niyama. And Barbara writes, chitta means mind, heart, or state of consciousness. Chitta niyama is the law of mental activity, something like psychology. It concerns consciousness, thoughts, and perceptions. We tend to think of our mind as us, she writes, or as the pilot directing us through our lives. But in Buddhism, mental activities are phenomena that arise from causes and conditions, like all other phenomena. In the teachings of the five skandhas, mind is a sense organ, and thoughts are the sense objects. In the same way, the nose is a sense organ, and smells are its objects. This is really different from Western psychology. This is like ancient psychology, and this is the way the Buddha, through his personal experience, this is not a theory or something he read, through his personal experience, he came to understand mind in this way. So, in Buddhism, we have six sense doors, not five. We have the eye and the ear and the nose and the tongue and the body and the mind. And each of these sense doors have sense objects, and the mind has thoughts as its object. Okay, so how does mind affect what happens to us? Well, number one, mind affects the way we interpret what happens to us. That some people say the glass is half full, some people say the glass is half empty, it's the same experience. It's a perspective that allows you to come to a place of acceptance with what's going on, I suppose. It also is an opinion and a way to evaluate your personal experience. It's always good to have a little self-evaluation as we go through our life to see how we think we are doing. And the thinking is the important part in that sentence. It also determines a lot of what happens to us because sometimes fear and dread will prevent us from going to that next place we think we should go or want to go. 
and we think we're going to just fail miserably, so why even go there? I find in my own personal life that I have a real big issue with making good enough perfect. And I have for years tried to make good enough perfect. And in all cases, I have broken the good enough and made it worse rather than better. So I'm trying to fix something and I want the screw just a little bit tighter and I strip the threads. I'm going, oh, if only I had just left it the way it was. Everything worked just fine, but in my mind, I thought I could get perfection out of this. You know, so, so mind can do us a disservice. Mind can, can create a false sense of control about our life, about our relationships, about our job, about our environment. We are one of the contributing factors in everything that happens in our life, but only one of the contributing factors. There are 9,999 other factors that contribute as well. So none of us are in charge of anything, really, even though sometimes it feels like we might be. And as the mind takes credit for all the stuff that goes right, the mind also denies the fact that it was in charge when stuff goes wrong. So it blames karma, or it blames God, or it blames the weather, or it blames something. That's how mind works. Can we transcend mind? Can we actually see how mind works? Can we see that mind is not who we are, or the director of who we are? And we can through our meditation practice. And in Vipassana, you sort of break it down to a bunch of mental activities that are impersonal, and look at the world in a very sort of distant, I don't, the word is in, not engaged way, for a while to see the mechanism, and then we jump back in and take the role on again. And then in Samatha meditation, which is the tranquility meditation, we go to this really deep state of transcendence where we leave the mind behind and we leave the body behind, and we just come to this very blissful, happy, rapturous state that we don't want to leave, but we have to. And, and, and then we can see as we're coming out of that sort of trance-like state, how the mind starts to manifest again. And the feelings come back and our body starts to hurt or feel good or whatever it feels like. And we, we start to just take this whole thing on again. Wow. And this is the mind. And now let me talk a little bit about the five skandhas and how the mind works in that. That the Buddha never looked at human beings as being one thing. We were always more than one thing. Everything in Buddhism is always more than one thing. It doesn't allow us to become a victim normally, because we can't just blame one thing and say it's that fault. So now we're going to go into what a human being is. A human being is mind and body, nama rupa, mind and body. In the five aggregates, or the five skandhas, it's form, sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness. Four of those has to do with mind. One has to do with body or form. Okay. So how does it work? This really baffled me when I first came upon it. It sounded profound, but I didn't understand what the heck they were talking about, which is very normal for me. So I read some other people's books on what they meant and finally came to my own conclusion. It seems to work like this. We have form. We have the form of the eye, and the eye has its own consciousness, and the form of the eye falls upon the form of the water bottle, and we are thirsty, 
And because we have this sort of rudimentary consciousness, see, if we're unconscious, the eye doesn't work. If we're unconscious, the ear doesn't work necessarily. So, but when we are conscious, everything works pretty well. And when our eye consciousness arises, because the form of the eye came in contact with the form of the water bottle, a sensation occurs. And we have three sensations. We have pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And because we're thirsty, we have a pleasant sensation, like the possibility of our thirst might be quenched if only we know what we're looking at. Well, how do we get this perception thing? How do we get this naming quality? Well, it started really young. Even in the womb, I understand, after listening to NPR yesterday, that children in the womb can hear their parents' words. They don't understand the words, they can't pronounce them, but they can. the ends go up or the ends go down. In German they go down, and in France they go up. And they go, okay, so that's why the French babies cry, and uh-huh, and the German babies cry, uh-huh. <laughs> Very cool. I had no idea. And so our speech patterns are dependent on our culture and our language, and... In learning how to speak, we learn how to see objects in our mind because we are using our mouth to make a sound and in our head, a picture comes up. And that's why we can read, I suppose, and see the story in our head and not just the sounds coming out of our mouth as we read out loud. Okay, how many words do we need to make a really good book? Thousands and thousands of words. And how many words do we need to make a really good life? Tens of thousands of words. Because we need to be able to observe those things around us. I posted something on Facebook the other day which I really thought was fascinating. It said, the whole purpose of education is to turn mirrors into windows. Mirrors into windows. I just knocked my socks off. I thought, yeah, because up until the point we really can see with words, we're just reflecting reality all around us. But when we turn that mirror into a door and stuff comes inside, it stimulates us in a very conscious way. And we have an understanding, a cultural understanding of what's going on. We can see things and name things. And we can communicate what we see and name with others who see and name in the same way. And we can have a conversation. And we can have all these little pictures going off in our head. And we can communicate. Little do we think that the pictures are all different in each one of our heads. But they're similar enough that allows us to talk to each other and sort of understand what we're trying to say. So now with all these words that are in my head, I am stimulated in a very pleasant way thinking that my thirst may be quenched and my eye falls on the bottle and perception happens and I recognize it as a bottle. And in that bottle, there is water. Because I have seen a thousand bottles like that and I have found 1,000 times there was water in all those bottles. So I'm really happy now. But... But that's just thought. I have, I gotta do something now. I gotta do something to make my thirst go away. I can't just think about my thirst going away because it won't go away. So now I have to pick up the bottle, unscrew the cap, bring that lip to my lips and drink that cool fluid to quench my thirst. 
And how did I learn how to do that? Well, my mom taught me how to use a spoon. And from that, I could hold a glass. And then I had plates. And then I could open doors. And I became pretty skillful in using my body to satisfy my desires. And now I have this really strong desire to quench my thirst, and I know how the bottle works, and I've unscrewed it a thousand times, and I unscrew it one more time, and wow, the volitional activity finally ends the model and satisfies my desire. So we have form, sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness for being mind. So mind is so important, so important. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say the fifth precept becomes a very important precept not to consume intoxicants because it alters the way the mind relates to the world around it. And it may be unskillful and cause the person with the altered mind to suffer more, not less. Though I know everybody really enjoys getting high and it's important, and I have a bag of fun in my refrigerator. It's a bag of Hershey's, the miniature ones. And when I want to have fun, I go to the bag of fun and have a couple. So, but if we can limit our intoxication to being just minor and not taking over our whole reality, we can function at a much higher level and suffer less, and those around us will suffer less as well. So these five niyamas, the five reasons why stuff happens, allows us to look at the world in a rather unique Buddhist way. To see, to feel that everything is happening, there's a natural order to stuff, This natural order has been defined by the five niyamas according to Buddhism. There are other natural orders out there. And we can come to a place of acceptance and understanding of why our life is the way it is and the possibility of making our life better than it is, better in the sense of less suffering, by understanding these five aspects.